As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Good morning. morning. I invite you to open to the book of Acts. Book of Acts chapter 1 verse 1. We'll be going to verse 5 today. Acts chapter 1 verse 1. Is where we want to be. The title of today's sermon is The Work of Christ. It's not a very uh, creative title by any means. And, and in some ways, it, it, we can look and say, what is even going on in these first five verses? And it's just that. In the first five verses of the book of Acts, Luke, the author of the book, is recounting for us what Jesus did all the things that he began to teach and do. We actually could see that in verse 1. If I just read verse 1 for us, it'll be up on the screen. It says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. See, Luke has written another book. You know it as the Gospel of Luke that has told all that Jesus did and taught. Some people will look at the books of Luke and Acts and see it kind of as volume one and volume two, if you will. And so Luke, and in both works, he titles them or addresses them to this person, this man, Theophilus, which is interesting because that name just means lover of God or loved by God. And so maybe it's just a nickname or some kind of nomenclature that he gives there. But it is written to this guy, and, and what we see is that Luke is recounting the works of Jesus to this man so that he can get an accurate understanding of all that Jesus did and taught. And so the message or our title for today is the work of Christ. But 
That brings us to a place, if Luke has written these two volumes, Luke and the book of Acts, and it's all that Jesus did, and Luke tells all that Jesus did, Acts is then going to pick up and tell what happens after Jesus ascends, which is what he tells us here, that I have dealt with all the things that Jesus began to do and teach, that he is going to then, through the rest of the book of Acts, tell us kind of the Acts, and some people call this the Acts of the Apostles. In fact, my Bible in the title says, the Acts, and then Acts is really big, because as we call the book a lot of times, but of the apostles, of what did they do after Jesus ascended into heaven? And that's what the book of Acts is all about. But before that happens, as we get this kind of prologue, which is just something that happens before the story gets started, uh, I'm reading uh, uh, The Lord of the Rings now, and there's a book before them called The Hobbit, and you have to read the prologue or The Hobbit to understand anything that happens in chapter 1. And what's happening in the book of Acts is he gives you Acts chapter 1, and it's a prologue. If you don't understand what happens in Luke 24, which we read this morning, if you don't understand what happened in the book of Luke, the book of Acts would be really, really confusing if you jumped in on Acts chapter 2. And so we get this kind of prologue, Acts chapter 1, which catches us up of all that Jesus did, and then it ties up one really big loose end as they pick a new apostle because Judas didn't pan out, but we'll get there here in a second. And then he starts with the book. And that's what the book is about. But as we look at that and we say, okay, so we're recounting kind of old history or recounting this other book. Why does it matter? Why do we need to take an entire sermon to even talk about these five verses if all these five verses are doing is catching us up on the book of Luke? Can't we just read them? They would catch us up and let's move on our merry way. So what I want to do is, is tell us a little bit. I want to show us why it's so important that we know our redemptive history. Why do we need to know what the Bible teaches about all that Jesus did and taught? So today's title is The Work of Christ, but then there's a subtitle. And it's this, Answering Three Common Objections to Biblical Christianity. See, we live in a world just like the apostles did, in which people are bringing objections and they're saying, is that what Jesus really taught? We live in a world that says, is that what the Bible really teaches us? Does the Bible really teach X, Y, Z? And if we're not careful students of the Bible, we find ourselves in sometimes a moment of panic because we say, I don't know, I guess I've always been taught that the Bible said that, but does it really And we can feel that we're drowning as it feels like sometimes other people know the text better than we do and we don't know what's going on. And what I want you to do is be prepared to know what the Bible really teaches about Jesus. What did the Bible teach that Jesus did and what does the Bible teach that Jesus taught? And I just want to look as we walk through these verses, verses 1 through 5, and I want to take them bit by bit and I want to bring up some objections to biblical Christianity that I have come across in just the last couple years, on personal levels, I have seen each of the obje- these objections play out. And I think our text, if we know our redemptive history well, we would say, yes, the Bible does really teach that. And so that's what we're going to do. Is we're going to look at Acts 1, 1 through 5, and try to answer these three questions while also keeping in mind the big picture of what the text is doing. And so the first objection that I think we come across that I've heard in recent years is, does the Bible really teach that there's to be authority in the church? 
Does the Bible really teach that we're supposed to have the church be institutionalized? Is the church supposed to have structure to it really at all? Because the argument basically goes that institutionalization or structure or leadership creates inevitably hierarchy. Hierarchy creates power and power inevitably is only used to oppress other people. And so the church, is it really, does the Bible really teach that the Bible or that the church is to have any kind of authority in our lives or have any kind of hierarchy or structure to it at all? Because doesn't Jesus just want us to all kind of get along? If we all just know God, shouldn't we all just be able to kind of come and know what to do together? The church doesn't need to be organized in any kind of way. We should just be able to love and let love and it's all good. And that way there won't be any of these structures of power and then these power structures won't lead us to sin and oppression or whatever it might be. And what I want us to see is that the idea of appointing leaders in the church is Jesus' idea, and that it is a biblical idea. That the church is to be led, and if there are leaders, that means the church does have and wield some authority in our lives. In Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. See, the reality is, is Jesus did set aside and choose leaders. He picked them, no one else did. Leadership amongst the early church was not anyone else's idea. It was the idea of Jesus. We read about that in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 15. It says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12. I know, I just shattered a lot of your worlds who were discipled by felt board. You only saw 12 disciples your whole life. There were more. There were a lot more. And he calls all these people who are followers of Jesus to him, and he sets aside 12. That means there were people who weren't chosen to lead, which means that they were chosen to follow. These 12 men were given authority to teach and make sure that the things that Jesus taught were continued on. And he didn't just give it to one person, but he gave it to to 12 men. The idea of authority, of choosing some to lead, is a biblical one. In fact, it's Jesus' idea. Paul will explain to us how that then gets worked out later in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. We'll look at verses 7 and 8 and then skip down to verses 11 and 12. But it says this, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to them, or excuse me, gave gifts to men. And then skipping down to verse 11, he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So what we see is that Jesus chooses these 12, and then throughout the church, what happens throughout it is there are leaders who are given as a gift to the church that leadership is a good thing and authority wielded properly clearly there are 
instances, even in the church, where this gets messed up, where people wield authority in sinful and wrong ways. But when it's done rightly, it's a gift and it's a blessing and it's a part of God's grace in our lives to equip the saints, that's all of us who are Christians, for the work of ministry, that we are built up into the body of Christ together when we are led and led well. Now, the 12 apostles are unique. There aren't any, there's no one else like them today. They did something that we just don't do. Well, one, they received some really special revelation from God, which we know as the New Testament. So when we look at the New Testament, one of the ways that we determine what's in the New Testament and what's not is its connection to an apostle. So Luke is a traveling companion of Paul, and we'll read about him. That's why we can count on his testimony so well in the book of Acts because he's traveling around with the apostle Paul who writes 14 other books of the New Testament and God is definitely using them in a way that he would never use me. If I get up here and say, turn to the book of Josh Rosenschredder, run away, that's wrong. If I claim to have found some kind of special revelation somewhere, no, I didn't. The canon is closed. The Bible is complete. We have what we need right here. And the apostles were used in a really special kind of way. But what we also see is that that tradition of leaders and leading local congregations didn't end with them. So it's not like the apostles came, they did this unique thing, and then it's done, and now we all just need to read our Bible and get, get with a program, and we'll all just kind of figure it out. But what happens throughout the book of Acts is that apostles begin to lead alongside men who are called elders or overseers, which we often call pastors. They actually only get called pastors once in all of the New Testament and First Peter 5, but the words elder or overseer is used for the same office over and over again. We see that they are a part of really important doctrinal decisions, like in Acts chapter 15, when they're trying to decide, do Gentiles need to be circumcised? We also see the elders are entrusted to lead local churches. We can think of Acts 20 or Titus even chapter 1, which we already studied, where Titus is told to go and and appoint elders in those churches to lead them. Or in Acts 20, Paul calls all the Ephesian elders together, and he knows he's not going to come back, and he tells them, he commissions them to lead the church. He tells them to be aware of false teachers, that it's their job to guard the truth and to lead the church in that way. In Acts 14, 23, Paul and Barnabas go back and visit all the other churches on their second missionary journey. And what they do is they go around appointing elders. They appoint people, men qualified to lead. And that's the other piece of evidence that we get that, of course, God intended his church to be led. He gives qualifications for those leaders. In Titus 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3, We get told what do elders need to look like? Who are they to be? What kind of character should they have? What skill set should they have? We also then are told that we are to reward elders who rule well. We can't cast off authority and say, no, God never intended us to have people who rule over us and then have passages that talk about when people do this well, when men do this well, take care of them and their families. In 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, Peter tells the elders how to lead. He gives them instruction of what it looks like to lead. You don't tell someone how to lead if they're not meant to lead and have authority. So yes, it begins with Christ, and then he does choose his 12 apostles. 
But what we see is the pattern in Scripture is those apostles go, and as they plant churches through the work of the Holy Spirit, they then set aside qualified men to lead those churches, and those men are called elders, pastors, or overseers. And as churches and churches grow, they appoint more and more. In fact, that's the instruction Paul gives to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2. He tells them, take this thing that I've taught you, these things I've taught you, and entrust them to good and faithful men who will go and teach others also. That's the line of testimony that we are a part of. It's God's plan. So the local church is a part of the mission. See, the Bible teaches that there's authority in the church because the church must be led because the church is led to actually do something. The church is on a mission, and that's what we see through the book of Acts. They're on a mission to proclaim the forgiveness of sins comes in the name of Jesus. And if we are on mission, if we aren't doing the things that Jesus has told us to do, then we're not really being the church that he wants us to be. And his plan to ensure that we stay the course is to be led by godly men. And so a lot of times we can look, and I think the culture says, the church is just, it's broken. There's, there's this, you know, we got to ditch it. We got to do something else. We got to go create this side ministry over here. And that's how we're really going to reach the world. Or the world will tell us, you know, this, I love Jesus, but I can't stay in the church. Or you'll even hear things of like, well, I have a relationship with God, so I don't really need to be a part of a local church. And I want to say, Jesus says you're wrong. Jesus' plan was to see churches established and led. He chooses the apostles to ensure that that plan takes place. The local church is a necessary part of the mission of God. We cannot accomplish it apart from that reality. And so that's the mission that he gives us. Because in that mission, we are told to proclaim that Jesus has has the ability to forgive us of sin. Why? Because he died and he raised from the dead, which brings us to our second objection. Does the Bible really teach that Christ literally rose from the dead? I have heard in the last two months, this is what YouTube will do to you, I try to keep a I try to listen to things and keep a pulse on what is happening in the world. It's not an unintentional thing. But so interesting about this particular claim is I would listen to one guy who called himself a progressive Christian. That's the title that he had, and I would sure he's very, very appealing to people who are maybe deconstructing, if you've heard that term, uh, where they're basically saying, like, we have just assumed all, this is what the Bible's teaching, the church is too mo- westernized, the Bible's been interpreted in westernized ways, and so we're just going to reread it, uh, and we're going to kind of figure this thing out. And so he was a progressive Christian. I'm sure he appeals very much to anybody who maybe leans a little left on certain social issues because he's going to, uh, that's just the way he's, he's wired. And he would say that, well, the Bible doesn't really make clear that Jesus rose from the dead, that the Gospels don't make that clear. In fact, he would argue that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't make that clear, that Jesus rose from the dead, that we really don't get a kind of deified Jesus until the book of John, which was written way, way later. No, he's not. John, I think John was written a lot earlier, but that's a whole other question, and, and, you know, your friend will get on the internet, they'll read one thing on Google, and then they'll become an expert in textual criticism. But they're not, and that's not what happens, and that's his claim. His claim is, the Bible doesn't really teach that. And we can say, oh, man, those liberals always changing stuff. But here's the deal. 
Just the other week, I heard uh, a guy who is renowned in conservative circles, borderline worshipped. The dude is just all over YouTube. If you are middle-class Caucasian and male, you have seen ads for this guy in your social media feed. Guaranteed. You've seen him. You probably love the things that he says. He's going to get you fired up, and you're going to want to say him. And you know what he said in a debate when somebody asked him, do you really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? He said, I don't think it's that simple. Not even the Gospels make it clear that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, let's let the Gospels speak for themselves this morning, shall we? Luke 24 Verses 36 to 49. I'm just going to read them through. As they were talking, talking about the disciples, about these things, which was an encounter on the road to Emmaus, two people encountered the resurrected Jesus. Two men encountered them, told them about them. Now they're talking about these things. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Now, if he didn't really die, why would they be scared? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. Now, what often happens in these conversations, both sides will say, Jesus didn't, he just appeared to be alive. He was like a spirit or a specter or a ghost. Okay, and that's what the Gospels teach, according to them. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. And then he said to them, these are my words that I have spoken to you while still with you, that everything written about the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Well, let me ask you this. Do the Gospels, does Luke, make clear that Jesus rose from the dead? Thank you, Kendall. Yes. Now, I don't know what you believe, and that's not what I'm trying to, to come at you. Maybe you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, or you're struggling with doubts. And I would say, you're not the only one. That account tells you they were looking at him, and they still disbelieved for joy. And we're marveling, because seeing someone raised from the dead would be pretty trippy. That's okay. But what I am saying really, really, really confidently is you cannot say, I don't know that the Bible teaches that Jesus rose from the dead. You either believe Jesus rose from the dead, and the Bible is the word of God, or you believe the Bible is wrong. The Bible makes it too clear. It doesn't leave any room for us to wiggle on this one. Jesus rose from the dead bodily and for real life. It happened in real space and in real time. And that's why in our passage this morning, picking up in verse 2, it says, as he, excuse me, verse 3, he says, he presented himself alive to them. If he didn't really die, that would be a weird thing to do. If he didn't really raise, 
That's a weird thing to do. But he presented them himself alive to them after his suffering, which is referring to his death, by many proofs. If he did not die and raise from the dead, why does he have to prove or give evidence to anything? But he does. Even the Bible recognizes someone raising from the dead is not an easy thing to believe, that you shouldn't just like take someone's word for it. But the Bible says, but he showed proof appearing then to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And those proofs that we just read about in Luke 24 is he had them touch them because he's, look, I'm not a spirit. Don't let people tell you that I'm a spirit, which is the first lie that came about in the first century. That's why you have books like 1 John and it opens up and you read it and you're like, what is this dude's deal? Because he's like, the things that we've seen with our eyes and touched with our hands and he's like really passionate about it because he has people telling him that he's crazy, that he didn't really see Jesus raised from the dead. And he says, yes, I did. And I touched him. The Bible leaves no room. Paul did, in fact, or excuse me, Jesus did, in fact, raise from the dead. And we see that reality. And he gave proofs. He also ate something because uh, kind of a thing at the time was like a ghost wouldn't eat. It wouldn't, they wouldn't do that. And so Jesus is like, here, just to show you, make me some fish and I'll eat it. And he eats on multiple occasions in the course of 40 days to show them that. And then he gives the proof that we as Christians should care about. He says, look to what the Bible says starting with the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, which is the three sections of the Old Testament, he's telling them that's what it's all about. Because while there are proofs given, what we also want to see is that the resurrection is the point. Jesus' death for sin and resurrection from the grave is not only proven, but it's the whole point of what we believe. Paul will tell us this in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 19. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people most are most, we are of all people most to be pitied. Yesterday, I cried. I don't cry often. That's not a normal part of my life. I cried because we left Illinois and we said goodbye to my sister and her husband and my nephew. And they are with Reed and Shelby in Central Asia. And they won't be able to come home again until the fall of 2024. That's a really long time to not see my sister and I cried, and Brittany cried, and Judah cried. And we did that, and you know what verse went through my mind? If in Christ we have hope, we have hope in this life only, we of all people, we are of all people most to be pitied. No resurrection, my siblings are nuts. They are wasting their time they have left their family for no good reason. If there is no resurrection from the dead, if Christ has not raised, we will not be raised. This isn't temporal. This is all you got. So don't do that. Don't go live on the other side of the world. Don't struggle to learn a language that just has them bouncing their head off a wall, that has them embarrassed on a regular basis because imagine what your life is like when you have to walk around and your vocabulary is that of a toddler. It's cute when it's Vera, it's not so cute when it's Chris, who's a redhead and big and beard. It's weird. 
It's hard. It's really hard. Why show up to church? Why give your money to the church? Why go to communion group? Why start new ones? Just be comfortable. Do the things you like to do. Don't do anything that's hard unless Christ has risen. If Christ has risen from the dead, then when Luke 24, verses 46 through 48 tell us, it says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and listen, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. There is no resurrection. There is no mission. There is no church. We are all wasting our time. It's silly. It's adult sing-along time. Karaoke will, will get that done for you. But listen, Christ has been raised. He rose again and he conquered sin and death. In his name are forgiveness of sins. And we get to proclaim that to the whole world. And that's awesome. He did raise, and so it is worth it. And while we weep when we tell people we love goodbye and send them to the other side of the world, we do it knowing that this is but a vapor. We do that knowing that we will have all eternity to spend together at the throne of Jesus. And there we will meet, by God's grace, people like Huck, who we prayed for this morning, or people like Martin, who we've paid for in the past. And we will say, I sacrificed my siblings so that you could become my brother. So that you might be my sibling too. And that's what we do. That's what the book of Acts will be all about. And it will be a lot harder than just goodbyes. They will be beaten. They will be martyred. They will be imprisoned. And if they will do that because they proclaim that Jesus rose from the dead. And so know whether you fall on the side that is tempted away by progressive ideology and you want to just, I don't know, be a good kind-hearted person and that is appealing to you, but they don't claim the resurrection of the dead that isn't Christianity, or whether you're more drawn to more conservative, level-headed kind of things that you want to think through, whatever it is that you think, I don't know, is attractive about these worlds, the world agrees Jesus didn't raise. Because that's the marker between the world, no matter where we fall on those kind of lines, and those of us who are in the church. The church is made up of people no matter where you lean, who believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And that means we are different than everyone else. We do have forgiveness of sins. We are sent out on a mission because the resurrection did happen. And because Jesus rose, and because we have a mission that is as big as go out into all the world, we see the last thing that we need is we need the Holy Spirit. We need a helper to help us. And praise God, we got him because our God is triune. Objection number three, does the Bible really teach that God is triune? Are you sure that the Bible teaches there's a trinity? You will have apologists coming to you in our ever-changing world from all over the world people who will say to you, you know, the Bible never uses the word 
Trinity. Show me the verse. You'll have people say, like one said to me a couple months ago, if you can show me a verse where God is Trinity right now, I'll believe. You'll be stumped. You'll be thinking, where is it? And it's not. You're right. The word Trinity is never used in the Bible. Not even once. It comes later as we read and understand the scriptures to describe who God is. Because while the word Trinity isn't used in the Bible, we do have passages like this one. Picking up in verse four from Acts chapter one. While staying with them, he ordered them, Jesus, to not depart from Jerusalem. By the way, resurrected Jesus, kind of a big deal. But to wait from the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So what you have is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being presented as God simultaneously. In the Bible, we have other passages like the baptism of Jesus, where Jesus goes and the Holy Spirit appears as a dove and it rests upon him in a voice calls out from heaven and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And what you have in that moment of the baptism is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all present all at the same time. It's not God taking on different forms like God in the Old Testament is God the Father. And then for a little bit, he becomes the son. And then for a little bit, and now he's like the spirit. Uh, That's another thing that a lot of anti-Trinitarians will try to tell you is what is happening in the Bible. But that's not what's happening in the Bible. All three are there. They're present. There's three persons. We cannot divide them from one another. Co-eternal, co-existent, complete in majesty and glory all together. This is who the Bible says that they are. So in this passage and other passages, yes, the Bible does teach us that God is triune, that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, I would argue that the Bible storyline necessitates a triune God, that what we see in the Bible is a pattern. What the Father wills or promises, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies to us. See, Jesus dies for sin in our passage this morning according to the Father's plan and promise. In Acts 2, we're going to be told that this was the predetermined plan of God that Jesus would suffer and die. And then the Spirit will dwell in man and cause new birth. That's how salvation happens. But the Father wills and promises, the Son accomplishes, and then the Spirit works within us by bringing about new birth and then dwelling in us. The Father's promise of the Holy Spirit... And the Son makes union with the Spirit possible through his death and resurrection. In Luke 24, we're told in verse 49 that we are there to wait there until they are clothed with power from on high. That the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, dwells within man. This is a part of who it is. They're told to do that. And in verse 4, we said, And they are ordered not to depart from Jerusalem. In the Bible's main storyline, Jerusalem is the land of promise. It's where God has told his people he's going to dwell with them. It's where he starts, and then he's going to launch his world mission from this. And so you have from the land of promise in Jerusalem a promise of power that will enable them to go and then fulfill his promise to save people from all nations. What the Father wills, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies. And it leaves us at a place where we have to see that God does all of it. 
He doesn't just tell these apostles, hey, you're good enough, go out and rock the world now that I've told you to do this thing. But even when he appoints them, earlier in our passage, it tells us he did it through the Holy Spirit. Or another way to understand that would be he appointed them and in such a way they're enabled to perform the task he gave them through the power of the Holy Spirit. This power that he's telling them, go wait for so that you might be clothed in power, so that you can actually fulfill this mission that I'm giving you. Because never do we look at the plan of God and look and say, man, it's a good thing he has us on his team. It's a good thing he's got really great people like Peter to preach the gospel to the world who messes up over and over and over again in the book of Luke. What it shows us is that God does it, and he does it by his own power, that he is completely self-sustaining. He invites us into what he's doing, and even bringing us into what he's doing, it does it in such a way that because he is Trinity, because he is triune, it gets accomplished through us. We then have this sign that's given to us or this symbol of water baptism, something that we continue to do and Christians have continued to do for a long time. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now because when we practice baptism, we are reminded of our triune God. We are baptized into a family of faith, the Father's family, because you're adopted into Christ and into a local church. We baptize people as churches, and that's why it's a prerequisite for membership in our church, that you are baptized, because we're saying you are entering into this faith community through what Jesus has done in this symbol. He's the one who does it and accomplishes it. But he baptizes us into our family. And when we are baptized, we are then baptized into the likeness of the Son, up to Jesus. In his death, as we go under the water, we are buried with him in baptism, is what the Bible says. And then when we come up out of the water, it says, and resurrected to walk in a new life. The point being that we are dead in Christ and then raised up. And we do that baptized, immersed completely under the water because it reminds us that we are clothed, immersed in the Holy Spirit. There's no part of your life that is untouched from the power of the Spirit of God. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus, the Spirit dwells within you. That's why you can have victory over sin. That's why you can have courage when you think, oh, I just I can't do it. You can because God has promised to change you and all of you. So while baptism doesn't save you or doesn't initiate the filling of the Holy Spirit, it's justification by faith that does that, it's a symbol, but it is a powerful symbol. The powerful symbol that there's no part of my life left untouched by the power of God. That we are clothed with power from on high. It reminds us of our Trinitarian God and then puts us forward of this is what we are supposed to do and who we are supposed to be. So I've looked at three objections this morning. The objection that, is the church really supposed to have authority? Did Jesus really raise from the dead? Is God really triune? 
And I hope we leave and say, well, the Bible says all of those things. The Bible says the church does have authority. It's meant to be led. The Bible does teach that Jesus rose from the dead. And the Bible absolutely teaches that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But not only are the objections important probably for your life, it's the conclusion that we now draw from them. And that's going to dictate the rest of our study through the book of Acts. If the church is meant to be led... If the church has a specific message it's supposed to proclaim, and if the church is empowered to proclaim that message, it is because the church is on a mission. A mission from God, in the words of the Blues Brothers. God's plan is for us to live on mission together. I will read it like this, and then I'm going to simplify it just a little bit to conclude. What am I supposed to do as I learn about these things? What if I'm not particularly wrestling with any of these three objections that I hear? What am I supposed to know? And it's this. Each Christian is created to proclaim the forgiveness of sins through the name of the resurrected Christ to all of the world. In the context of the church— through the practice of your gifts as directed by godly leaders and is empowered for this mission through union with the Holy Spirit, which is won by the Son of God and planned by the Father. That's a mouthful, I know. Let's make it a little more simple. God is calling you to do your part in relationship with other people who are doing their part. To tell others about Jesus And what you need to know is you have the power to do this. You have the ability to do this because he has given us, he has made us his witnesses and we are clothed with power from on high. That's the reality. If you want a life plan, if you want a life mission, if you want to know why was I put on this earth, that's why you and every other Christian was put on this earth to proclaim that there's forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. God is, Man, who became man, lived a perfect life, died for sin, and rose again from the dead. And he came and he brought his church together, made up of different people who have different gifts and abilities, and some who do different things. And knowing that that doesn't look the exact same for everybody, but we are in this together. And that we are enabled to do this by the work and power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we get to do. And that's who God calls us to be. And that's what I'm excited to study about as we walk through the book of Acts. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for all that you give us. Lord, I thank you that even though you bring about objectors to our faith in this world, that we can wrestle with their objections and in it become more inclined to better understand who you are. You are a good and gracious God and we love you. Father, I thank you that you are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, triune, co-eternal, and always existing, and that your uh, just reality of who you are enables us to carry out the mission that you've given us, that you now dwell within us. And so, Lord, please fill us and, and empower us to be faithful to this text. And I ask this in your name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.